sometimes people think that once they become Christians, all the inner turmoil and all the problems are supposed to cease. Uh, well, Romans chapter 7 tells us to the contrary, and in many ways the problems just begin. Because whereas there was not a battle before we were Christians, now there is a battle between the spirit and the flesh going on, pulling us this way or that way. And so Paul tells us how we can have victory, and that victory comes through our Savior who has died to set us free. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motion of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that, ye, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. For what shall we say then? Is the law of sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law sin, <clears throat> sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do allow not... Let me read that again. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I... Would not I consent unto the law that it is good? Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that... I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law 
that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Our text this Lord's Day for our sermon is found in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. Proverbs 13, 20. There we read, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. It has been said that you can tell what a person is like and what they will become like by the company he chooses to keep. For example, those who choose to spend their time in fellowship and in communion with the ungodly will most likely learn their sinful habits, their unclean speech, and their lustful desires. Not only is this true in general, but it is also true as it relates to those who are Christians, who have genuinely embraced the Lord Jesus Christ with a saving faith. Consider the effect the ungodly inhabitants of Sodom had on righteous Lot. A righteous man, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the nephew of Abraham, having chosen to live in that notoriously wicked city, Lot had to be eventually literally forced, pushed out of the city by two angels before the Lord destroyed it. Tragically, his association with Sodom led even his wife and his children into a love affair with that wicked city. You remember his wife looked over her shoulder, commanded by the angels not to look back to Sodom, looked over her shoulder with a longing for that city and was turned into a pillar of salt. There we see, dear ones, there is etched forever into our minds the judgment that befalls those whose heart desires and chooses to keep company with the wicked. It is a downward spiral that leads to severe discipline or destruction from the Lord. Now, to the contrary, we are taught by the Spirit of God in the first psalm what our attitude and behavior ought to be in regard to those who oppose the commandments of God, there we find these words, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. The psalm teaches that the man who enjoys the blessedness of the Lord does not go from bad to worse. First, by walking and imitating the wicked habits of the ungodly, 
And then, secondly, standing in the paths with those who willfully disobey and violate the commandments of God. And finally, sitting in the seat of those who blaspheme the Lord. Sitting in the seat. Now, finally, teaching those around them how to be ungodly as well. There's a spiral progression downward. If we begin to consciously say, I want to spend time with the wicked and with the ungodly. To imitate the wicked in our desires, speech, and conduct will set us on a path to becoming like them until there is little or no difference between the children of God and the children, children of the devil. How and in what ways, I ask you today, dear ones, how and what ways are you fellowshipping and communing with the wicked and with the ungodly. It may not be a conscious decision on your part to be like them, just as it was not a conscious decision on Lot's part to be with the Sodomites. However, if we do not continually evaluate those with whom we are choosing to spend time, we may ever so gradually begin walking and then standing and then sitting with the ungodly in our thoughts and desires, in our words and in the expressions that we use to communicate with one another, or in our behavior and in our conduct. May God direct us to take careful inventory of our lives this Lord's day to the glory of Christ who saved us from all of this ungodliness. I ask you now, dear ones, do you want to be wise or do you want to be a fool? God asks you that question today. Do you want to be wise or do you want to be a fool? God says whether you are wise or whether you are foolish will to a large degree be determined by those with whom you choose to spend time. With those whom you prefer to be around. From our text this Lord's Day, first of all, if you walk with the wise, you will be wise. Proverbs 13.20, the first part of the verse. And the second main point, if you walk with fools, you'll be destroyed. Proverbs 13.20, the second part of the verse. So let us consider our first main point then. If you walk with the wise, you will become wise. Look at what, again, Solomon says. Proverbs 13.20, the first part of that verse. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. Well, let us first determine what it is to be wise. <clears throat> and in order to determine what it is, I want to even go back one step further and say what it is not. What biblical wisdom is not? Biblical wisdom, dear ones, is not mere mental acquisition of biblical knowledge and truth. Wisdom is not merely cramming our heads full of knowledge so that we are able to answer difficult theological questions. That in and of itself is not wisdom. Knowledge of the truth may either humble a man or it may puff up a man. Knowledge of the truth may be used to make a man holy or it may be used to make a man haughty. Now, I do not mean in any way to disparage or disregard knowledge of the truth at all. 
For biblical knowledge certainly is the foundation upon which biblical wisdom is built. You can't apply something which you do not know. And so we must first know what God says concerning the truth before we can apply it wisely. Knowledge is the root of wisdom, whereas wisdom is the fruit of knowledge. And I would simply submit to you, dear ones, at this time, if the infallible truth of God as revealed through Jesus Christ our Savior is not the rock upon which we build our lives in this world, we will be left to the shifting infallible thoughts and opinions of men upon which to build our lives and will be destroyed just as the man that built his house upon the sand was destroyed. What we believe to be true will certainly shape and mold how we live. We are not downplaying knowledge. When we speak of wisdom not being merely knowledge, we're not downplaying knowledge. We must know the truth. We must embrace the truth. But wisdom is something other than merely acquisition and apprehension of the truth. Let me illustrate this for you. If we believe that man is inherently good rather than, as God teaches in the Bible, inherently evil, sinful, due to his fall in Adam, we will not look to Christ as one who suffered the infinite wrath of God to satisfy divine justice for condemned sinners. But if we believe that man is basically inherently good, we will rather look to Christ as a mere example of, of love which we are to follow. He'll simply be one after whom we desire to pattern our lives, to be self-sacrificial, which is certainly true. We can glean a lot from the example of Christ. But the death of Christ means far more than simply something we are to imitate. Jesus Christ accomplished something upon the cross in dying for sinners, in satisfying the infinite wrath of God, in reconciling sinful man unto himself. Carefully note the importance of knowledge of the truth in this specific regard which we are now uh, speaking. First, it is absolutely essential that we know and understand that we all stand condemned before a holy God due to our sin and that without a Savior we shall all spend eternity in hell absolutely uh, essential that we know certain facts, certain truths. It is also absolutely necessary that we know that Jesus Christ came to rescue sinners, to rescue sinners who will turn from looking to their own works of righteousness and look in faith to Jesus Christ alone as their perfect righteousness and as their only hope of eternal salvation. You see, dear ones, what we believe about God, about Christ, about sin, and about salvation is absolutely necessary if we would have everlasting life. But this is where wisdom comes in. To simply know these truths and yet to refuse to receive Jesus Christ by faith is tantamount to setting food before a starving man who refuses to eat and to live. Thus he perishes because he will not eat. 
herein is illustrated the importance of not only knowing the truth, but applying the truth. Not only knowing who Christ is, but receiving by faith the Christ that is offered to us in the gospel. See, that is true wisdom. The application of what you know to be true. Well, let's now shift gears a little bit and talk about what biblical wisdom is. We've just identified what it is not. It's not mere intellectual acquisition or apprehension of truth or of knowledge. Biblical wisdom, dear ones, is a grace. By that we mean it is not something we earn or deserve. It is a free gift. Biblical wisdom is a free gift given to us, given to all who trust in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation. It is not something we work for. It is something graciously bestowed and given to us. And it is the application, I want to emphasize that word, it is the application of the knowledge of the truth rather than, again, the mere acquisition of the knowledge of the truth. For Jesus Christ is not only the truth of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is not only the truth of God who illuminates our minds and our understanding as to what we are to believe, but Jesus Christ is also the wisdom of God who teaches us how we are to please Him in every area of our life. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, Jesus Christ is it's said of Christ that in him dwells all knowledge and wisdom. And in Colossians or in First Corinthians chapter one, Jesus Christ is made unto us wisdom. Therefore, dear ones, to be in union and in communion with Jesus Christ is to be in union and in communion with wisdom. For Jesus Christ is wisdom. They are inseparable one from the other. But not to be in union and not to be in communion with Jesus Christ is not to be in union and not to be in communion with wisdom. If, for example, we believe that God cannot lie and is ever faithful to his word, truth very clearly taught in the scriptures, what effect should that truth have in our lives? Should we just leave it there? Theoretical knowledge? Well, how it should affect your lives in part would be that we will be wise in applying this truth by seeking to be faithful and honorable in all of our lawful covenants and promises that we've made to our spouse, to our employer, to our church, to our God. There's going to be the working out of what we know to be true. That's the wise man who applies it. Or if we believe that God knows all and sees all, which again is a truth proclaimed in all of Scripture, what effect will that truth have in your life and in mine? Well, we will be wise by realizing how foolish it is to pretend as if God does not see the sins that we commit in secrecy. To think and act as if no one knows the sins we have committed in secret is to be foolish. 
rather than to be wise because it's not applying the truth that God sees all and knows all. <clears throat> we have not applied to our, our lives that truth which we profess with our mouths. That's foolish. That's not wise. From our text, I would ask the question, how does wisdom increase in our lives? We said that it's a grace bestowed upon us by God, but how does it increase? How does it grow in our lives? Let me give you, very quickly, four ways in which wisdom increases in our lives. First of all, by studying and filling our minds with the Word of God, so that we know what we are to believe to be true. We have to fill our minds with truth. Where is truth going to come from? For the Christian who has access to the Scriptures is going to come from God's Word, because all Scripture is inspired of God. All of it. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, full, complete. The second way in which we increase in wisdom is by praying much for wisdom. As we look at James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, there we're, we're encouraged, if any lack wisdom, that we are to pray in faith, believing that God gives wisdom. Now, in that particular situation, it's talking about wisdom as we face various trials, as we face suffering. How are we to respond when we're under such intense pressure from the world? When it feels like we are running as fast as we can, we can't elude our enemies. The enemy within, by way of our own lust, our own sins, or enemies without. Well, we need to pray for wisdom. That God would help us not only to know the truth, but to apply the truth to our lives. That truth which we know. A third way in which wisdom is increased in our life is by loving wisdom and seeking it above any pleasure or above any treasure upon the earth. According to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, we are to, to search and to seek for wisdom more than we search to seek for any silver or gold, any pleasure upon the earth. That should be paramount in our lives. And we want to be wise. Wise like our Savior. Wise like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must love wisdom. We must seek it. God gives wisdom. The wisdom doesn't grow but by means. Wisdom grows by using the means that God gives to us. Just as a seed isn't going to grow ordinarily without water and without the sun. So wisdom in our lives is a seed and it's not going to grow without the means that God has given to us. Us using those means. And fourthly, how does wisdom increase in our lives? By spending time with those who are wise. According to Proverbs 13.20, our text today. How does wisdom increase and grow? By spending time with those who are wise. Solomon declares that those who would sincerely desire to increase in biblical wisdom, that is to grow in their ability to apply the truth of Christ more and more to their lives and to the lives of others, must prefer to spend time with those who are wise 
rather than with those who are foolish. You want to grow in wisdom. That must be your desire. That must be what you prefer, prefer above, above all other things, to spend time with those who are wise. Now, a word of caution at this point, I think, is in order. Let us not go around trying to identify those in the congregation who are wise and who are fools on the basis of the following criteria. How long they have been a Christian. We'll, we'll talk about these in just a moment. Secondly, how much they seem to know. How zealous and enthusiastic they seem to be about the things of God. None of these things... None of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But I'm going to, to be looking at these in just a moment a little more closely. If we are simply looking at these things and, and not at something else, we will be misled. Fourthly, how many conspicuous spiritual gifts a person may have. And fifthly, how popular they are or how well they are liked. Dear ones, it is possible that one may be wise in many ways and yet be a fairly recent convert who knows relatively little compared to others in the church but is growing in the knowledge and endeavoring to, to apply all that he knows to his life. I would submit to you that just because one is a new Christian doesn't mean that one is a fool. Just because they don't know as much as the next person doesn't mean that they're a fool. The issue is, what they do know, are they applying in their lives? And do they desire to learn more and to grow, continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? In fact, one who professes to have been a Christian for many years and claims to have much theological knowledge may be foolish because he is not endeavoring to apply to his life what he knows. He is not practicing what he preaches. That's a fool. No matter how long they claim to have been a Christian or how much they claim to know, they're not practicing what they do know. That's a foolish person, not a wise person. Again, it is possible that those who are very zealous for God, may have a zeal, but not a zeal according to knowledge. They may be very enthusiastic about the things of God, but their enthusiasm is more heat than it is light. So we don't simply consider one to be wise because they're bouncing all over the place because they're so zealous for the things of God. doesn't necessarily mean that a person is wise. Zeal is good. I'm not downplaying zeal at all. We should have a holy zeal for the things of God. We should desire to know the things of God. We should desire to be a Christian for the rest of our life. All of those things are good. All I'm saying is that's not, in and of itself, those particular criteria are not sufficient to determine who is truly wise. I would also say they may be very gifted communicators, have very conspicuous gifts. They may have a photographic memory. They may have a winsome personality, but may be foolish rather than wise because they devote very little time or no time at all 
and do not take seriously the importance of applying God's truth to their own lives, to their own families, to their own work ethics, to their own recreations, to their own pleasures, to their own appearance, and the way they dress. They do not consider that to be of a nature of something that God would be interested in. They do not apply the Word of God to all areas of their life. They limit God's Word, that it applies to this area, but not to these areas. Whereas those who are truly wise may quietly get the job done behind the scenes, helping and encouraging one another. There may be a very wise person. He doesn't talk a lot, or, or she doesn't talk a lot. She or he may do more listening rather than engaging and being the loudest in theological debates. We're not opposed to theological discussions in our church either. But the one who does the most talking is not necessarily the one who's the most wise. You may find those who are wise, as we said, not talking, but doing more listening, doing more reflecting, learning more, and quietly, ever so quietly, but every day, consistently applying, applying, applying what they learn to every area of their life. There is a truly wise man, woman, or child. And so what I'm trying to communicate to you is, if it hasn't been so clear up to this point, he or she who is wise is not wise necessarily because of the gifts that they possess, but because of the grace they possess to use that which God has given to them. Even if they have only been given one talent, as in that parable, one of the servants is given one talent, one was given five, one is given ten talents, would the Lord Jesus have criticized and condemned the servant who was given one talent if he had used that talent? What did he do with the one talent he was given? He went and buried it. That's a fool. If you have been given anything by God, whether by way of knowledge, by way of abilities and gifts, by way of temporal uh, riches or wealth, are you using it to extend the kingdom of God? Are you using it to benefit others. I have had you hidden it and selfishly used it. The wise man uses the knowledge, graces, and gifts of God. The foolish man abuses, misuses, or buries the knowledge, gifts, and graces of God. And so if you would be truly wise, consciously seek to spend time with those who are wise in not wasting, but in redeeming the time, talents, and treasures given to them by God. And we're not limiting those who are wise to simply adults today. Children, are you listening? Children can be wise too. We can have wise children. What a blessing to have wise children. Because they are not only able to recite from memory the catechism, but also because they apply the truths that they are learning to their lives. There is a wise child. Children, do you want to be wise? Or do you want to be 
foolish. I hope your answer is you want to be wise. Who would want to be a fool? All that comes of being foolish is, according to God, destruction. What comes of being wise is salvation. There's an example for you children that is mentioned in the Bible of three young men. We don't know exactly how old they were, but their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were really wise. You know why they were really wise? Not because they were old. Not because they had gray hair. Not because they had been Christians a long time. But they were very young men. But because when they knew the truth that God had said that he alone was to be worshipped. And when the king... King Nebuchadnezzar commanded them to bow the knee to an image which he had constructed. They said, no. No, we're not going to do it. They took the knowledge that they had and they applied it in that situation. They said, no, we will not bow the knee to this image. You can put us into the fiery furnace. You can heat it up ten times, seven times, whatever. As hot as you want it to be. But we're not going to be fools. We're going to be wise in applying the truth we know to that particular situation. You see, their knowledge of God was not separate and distinct from their actions, as so often is the case today. They did not divide their life into categories such as our faith in Christ is only useful and to be applied on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's day, or when we are around other Christians or other believers. Their faith was to be applied every day and in every situation. They were wise. So I ask you, do you spend, do you desire to spend your time with those who are wise? That is, with those who have an appetite for Christ, who yearn to know more of Christ, and who seek to use their knowledge, gifts, and graces to glorify Christ? God says that these are the people with whom you want to spend time, whom you desire to observe and to be like, whom you go to, in order to seek advice, you yourself will become like them. You will become wise. That's what God says. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us, for an example. Follow us. Follow those who are an example to you in their faith. Desire to be like them, to walk in their steps. Again, we find in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, similar instruction with regard to being around and observing and walking after the wisdom of the wise. When we read these words, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, that ye be not lazy in this regard, well, basically in any regard, but specifically here, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Follow those who inherit the promises of God, who are applying the promises of God to their lives. Follow them. 
You need not only spend time with those who are wise and presently living. Do you know that you can be very wise in the way you spend time with those who are already dead and gone to be with the Lord? You can spend your time reading the accounts of the martyrs and the witnesses of Christ. You can be encouraged in your faith as to how they stood by reading how they stood in very perilous times, how they did not compromise, how they were willing to lay down their very lives for what Christ had revealed in His Word. You can be wise by spending time with them, though they have gone many, many years ago to be with the Lord. You can spend time with Calvin. You can spend time with Knox. You can spend time with Luther. You can spend time with Rutherford and Gillespie. You can spend time with Cameron and Rennick and many other saints who have departed because they were wise. You can read not only the theological works, which are obviously very helpful, but you can read the practical sermons as well as to how to apply the truth to your own lives, which they stood for. So you can spend time with the wise, not only those who are living, but those who have departed and gone to be with the Lord. Most of all, you can spend time with Christ in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ every day, appointing time in the course of the day that you will read His Word, that you will call out to Him, that you will fellowship with Him as a personal Savior, not simply as your God in a very uh, foreign, in a very abstract sense, but as your personal God whom you have laid hold of by faith and trust. You can spend time with the living God, with Jesus Christ. And remember that it is not mere men to whom you look in order to be wise, but it is Christ to whom you look to be wise. Christ even in the lives of the men that we've been talking about. Christ in the lives of men and women that you would want to be around today. It's not those people in and of themselves that, is go- that are going to teach you wisdom. But it is Christ in them will teach you wisdom. We do not listen to men simply because they hold a place of authority in the church. That is not the basis upon which we listen to any man. We listen to men because they are communicating accurately the word of truth. And we want to follow those who not only communicate it, but who apply it in their lives as well. My sheep, Jesus said, hear my voice, and they follow me. We desire to be with those who are wise only because they evidence the wisdom of Jesus Christ in their attitudes, desires, goals, words, and actions. In effect, we desire Christ in them. Second main point, which will be much shorter. If you walk with fools, you'll be destroyed. Listen to, again, Solomon, the latter part of this verse. But a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Just as we considered what wisdom is, let us spend a minute identifying what foolishness is. And let me give to you about five things that came to my mind as to what foolishness is. Foolishness, dear ones, is arrogance and pride. Where knowledge is used to promote how much we know 
and to communicate that to others, how much we know. Not so much to communicate the truth, but to communicate how much we know to others. That's arrogance and that's pride. That's foolishness. That's not wisdom. Secondly, foolishness is obstinacy, where we refuse to be enlightened by the Spirit of God in hearing and receiving the truth of God. That's foolishness, to be stubborn and obstinate and say, I will not listen to that truth. If one, if one comes and gives the truth of God's word, we should always be willing to hear. Now, if what they may, many, many cults will quote from the, from the Bible, but they misuse, obviously, the scriptures. We must, in those cases, know the word of God well enough to be able to say, that's not what the Bible means at that particular to- uh, point. But foolishness is obstinacy. Obstinacy in error. Obstinacy in sin. Thirdly, foolishness is self-centeredness, where we must do things our, our way rather than God's way. That's foolishness. That's self-centeredness about the way we live. Fourthly, foolishness is receiving the knowledge of the truth, but using it, but not using it and applying it in our lives like that one type of soil that received the word of God joyfully but didn't produce any fruit. That's foolish. And fifthly, foolishness is listening to man rather than listening to Christ as revealed in the scripture. That's foolish too. Only God has absolute authority and he's not communicated absolute authority to anyone else. Only God is absolutely authoritative. He does delegate to man a limited authority, to his ministers a limited authority, but not an absolute authority. An authority to speak only that which Christ teaches. Solomon says, dear ones, those who are foolish in the ways just mentioned desire to spend their time with those who are like them. That is, those who are foolish. The fools dis- uh, desire to spend time with fools. That makes sense. They do not really want to commune and learn from the wise <clears throat> because every time they get around those who are wise, they, they, they say, well, they rub me the wrong way. That's a code word for I don't like what they have to say. <laughs> for the foolish man, dear ones, is broad in his acceptance and toleration of whatever man might propose. That's foolish to simply accept what man may propose, to think in terms of such relativity as if there are no absolute truths. Whereas the wise man is narrow-minded, an awful word in today's society, but the wise man is narrow-minded in that he desires to be directed by what God declares to be true and right and pure and holy. When Solomon speaks of of the companion, that word companion, the companion of fools. The Hebrew word for companion comes from a word which means to feed. Thus, companions were those in the Hebrew mind that one would spend time with eating and communing around a table. Paul says, you'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that there are even professing Christians with whom we should not eat and commune because they are obstinate in their sins and errors. Let me read for you that passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. 
But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, no, not to eat. And that's not an exhaustive list. Those who would be rebellious and obstinate in their sins or their errors, the Lord calls us, even if they profess to be Christians, and may they truly are Christians, but walking in a, in a disorderly way. We're not to desire to be spending time with them, communing with them in that sin. And around a table, the Lord says, we're to draw certain lines when it comes to those who are obstinate in their sin and in their error. We can't simply pretend as if there's nothing wrong, the Apostle Paul says, lest we learn from them and become like them in their foolishness. For a little leaven, Paul says in another portion of the scripture, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. However, we may always spend time with unbelievers and even with wayward Christians if they are open to the truth and desire to hear the truth. Christ Jesus was called He met with the ungodly, with the crooked tax collectors, with the harlots, and with even self-righteous Pharisees. Not to commune with them in their sin, not to ignore and neglect their sin, but in order to lead them out of their sin and to bring them by knowledge of the truth to a saving faith in himself. And so might we do as well. We may meet with those who are non-Christians or who are Christians living in various types of sins with the purpose of bringing them out, not to condone, but to bring them out and back into communion and fellowship with Christ. However, when we do so, word of caution, choose where you will spend time with such sinners. Choose it well. Don't go into their dens of iniquity to spend time with them in their dens of iniquity. You know somebody who is um, a striptease uh, dancer. You don't go into the den of iniquity to minister to those there. Just an outrageous illustration, but just trying to uh, illustrate to you there are times and situations in which you minister to the ungodly. You do not do so on their terms, but on the terms which Christ has set for us. You don't compromise the truth in order to minister. You don't ignore the truth in order to minister. You may seek to establish a relationship, that's fine, but it's always with a goal. It's always with a purpose and the goal to bring them to Christ or to bring them out of their sin or their error. And remember, dear ones, it is not you that saves a single soul. It is God alone that saves souls from sin. He will do so by means of the truth coming from a heart filled with love. Now, those who choose to spend time, as we draw to the close of the sermon this Lord's Day, 
Those who choose to spend time with fools will not only become like them, Solomon says, they will be destroyed. Don't miss that. It is bad enough to become like them, but that's not the end of the story. They will be destroyed. No doubt destroyed in body in various ways, perhaps in this life, because of the various ways they may abuse themselves, because they identify with a certain crowd or a group. But dear ones, ultimately, and more importantly, be destroyed in both body and soul in everlasting torment in hell. Be destroyed, finally and forever be destroyed. That's the lot of those who are fools. Not a glorious lot. Despicable, painful, anguishing lot. Dear ones, with such consequences at stake, it behooves us to weigh so carefully such questions as these. With whom do we spend and with whom do we desire to spend our time? Who do we want to be like? Who are our heroes? To whom do we look up to? The answer to those questions, I believe, in all of our lives can be easily determined by asking a few questions. How many hours in the course of the week do you spend in wanting to be like certain movie stars or rock singers or TV personalities or sports figures? They become your goal. You want to be like them. For dear ones, when that's the case, you are communing with them in their music, in their movies, in your thoughts and desires, even if you have never, ever personally met them. You are communing with them. You want to be like them. Do you want, dear ones, do you want to be like them? Or are they hot? Or are they cool? Whatever the term may be. Because they are wise like Christ? Or do you want to be like someone who is hot or cool because they're fools? They're obstinate in their sins and in their errors. That's not good, dear ones. Jesus says, through his prophets, Solomon, those who desire to be a companion of fools will be destroyed. Are you attracted to people because of their gifts or because of their wisdom? Because they are famous and good-looking or because they are wise? Dear ones, if you would be wise, children, young people, parents, grandparents, if you would be wise, commune with those who are wise, for the companion of fools will be destroyed. Let us stand together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. There's a light into our path this day. It illuminates our minds and our understanding. And by Thy grace, O Lord, fill us with not only enlightenment to understand these truths, but, O Father, with the willingness to obey, to apply the truth we have heard. Let us, Lord, not leave this building today wanting to be fools, wanting to associate ourselves with fools those who are obstinate in sin and error. 
that, O Lord, let us desire to be wise. Be wise like our Savior and with all of those who are growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Lord, as parents, help us in guiding our children and making, therefore, important decisions in this regard. And help us as parents, Father, not to set stumbling blocks before them by the way in which we have double standards. Lord, our God, work in our lives that we be not fools, that we be wise in the salvation. Have mercy upon us, Lord, and we are thankful for thy forgiveness. For in every way in which we have been foolish, O Lord, and which we will be foolish, Lord, there is atonement. There is one who has died to forgive those sins. And we need not continue, therefore, today in our foolishness. So, Father, even as thou hast invited us to come unto Christ, Lord, work in the lives of everyone present to come unto the Lord Jesus Christ today, to embrace him if they have never done so, for the first time to embrace Christ alone for their eternal salvation as their wisdom. And Father, those of us who have, O Lord, to renew our covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to Him afresh and anew, confessing our sin and our need of Him. Send us forth, O Lord, with renewed vigor this day, renewed courage and strength to follow and to obey Thee that our homes, O Lord, may be preserved and not destroyed, that our children and grandchildren, O Lord, may live for Thee and stand with us before the throne of God. We ask, Lord, all of these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, 
they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.